0: Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. It's going to be a great hour. My friend, Bible mentor and teacher, Jeff Verdorn, is in studio. No chart today, thank goodness, uh, for me. But uh, he's got his own chart that he's going to be working off. we're going to be talking about parables today, it's going to be an outstanding hour. So I would recommend grabbing your Bible and also grabbing your notebook. Maybe you even have a, uh, a faith radio journal, a genuine moleskin journal. Get that out, get your pen, take notes. We're going to grow in our faith and understanding of the parables today. And we've got a little announcement to make uh, at some point in this hour as well, which I think is going to be exciting and fun for everybody. Uh, So let me take 60 seconds and then we'll have Jeff on in just a minute. Following Jesus in every season. Radio. Thanks for being part of the family
1: of Faith Radio. Well, it's been around a long time, and it's been fairly constant, and I like that they're fairly um, even in that way out there, so that's what I like about it.
0: I have been active with BSF for a while, and um, that's what turned me on to your radio station,
1: so it's been about 12 or 13 years, and it's been wonderful.
0: The teaching is amazing. I've supported the station for probably 35 years It's encouragement and hope for your daily journey. Faith Radio. That woke up song belongs to my friend and mentor Jeff Berdorn, who's in studio. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. I'm skipping all the... uh, Fluffy introduction, are you? Okay. We're just getting right to it. We're going to talk about parables today. That's pretty exciting. I love it. Why
1: does Jesus speak in parables? How about that
0: for an opening fastball? It, it, Take a swing uh, at that.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a straight fastball right down the middle yeah. because actually the disciples asked Jesus that very question and he answers it. So in Matthew 13, the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them? in parables. And he basically says this, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And I think the 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 first reason is that God is teaching the people these truths. But if you don't want to understand, you're not going to understand the parable. If you do want to understand, I think you will understand the parable. So I think it's hidden, not hidden by God. I don't think God purposely hides himself from anybody, but he diligent rewards those who seek him. And I think if you're seeking him and seeking truth, you will understand. He goes on to actually quote from Isaiah, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. So I think that's why, number one, why Jesus says that he spoke in parables. The disciples asked him that question. But then I think, too, there's also a a simple reason, kind of an earthly reason. Uh, Parables are often described as uh, earthly messages with a heavenly meaning. I kind of like that definition, right? I like that. And most parables that we know, there is one core simple truth that the story or the parable is trying to convey. And they're generally easy to remember. So if you think about the tortoise and the hare. Mm-hmm. right you, the, you immediately comes to mind you kind of know the flow of the whole story and you know the simple lesson that you know slow and steady wins the race mm-hmm. right so there's the simple core truth so i think jesus spoke in parables because he wanted to convey some simple core truth uh that he wanted people to remember and then third the third reason i think that why jesus spoke in parables is because it was prophesied And uh, actually in the Old Testament, Jesus spoke to the multiples in parables. He was not speaking to them uh, anything without a parable so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world, Psalm 78, 1 through 4 says. So I think that's why he speaks in parables. I love it. So might there be principles that we could learn for figuring out how to better understand the parables? Well, absolutely. So, a metaphor, a, a parable, is simply some kind of symbolism or symbolic language that that Jesus is using to convey some spiritual truth. So, a, a quick little overview of kind of symbolic language. There are similes. A simile is when you say uh, like or as. So, you're using a symbolism to convey a truth. So, you'd be say crazy like a. Fox. Fox. Mm-hmm. He is as strong as an ox, ox right? Mm-hmm. And so you use a, 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 some kind of symbolism to convey a meaning. A metaphor is similar to, uh, by the way, there's lots of similes in the Bible as well. So it says, uh, for example, in Revelation, his hair and his head were white like wool, as white as snow, right? And his eyes were like burning fire. It doesn't mean his eyes were burning like fire, it means his eyes were like a burning fire. The second kind of symbolism is a metaphor. So a metaphor would be a figure of speech uh, that makes an implicit or implied comparison. And if you think about a couple of metaphors that we know, my brother was boiling mad, right? Or, you know, my uncle is kind of the black sheep of the family. Um, These are not literal statements, obviously. Uh, They're metaphors, but we all know what they mean by using this symbolic language. In the Bible, there's also a lot of metaphors. Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the bread. He wasn't literally bread. He wasn't a literal vine. Uh, He is using symbolic language to convey a truth. So then comes a parable. A parable is simply a metaphor that's continued or told in a story form. And like I said, a lot of times people describe them as earthly stories with heavenly Meaning, so we have prodigals. We have the uh, the boy that cried wolf. We know immediately the simple message of the boy who cried wolf um, by just simply stating the name of the parable. So too, when we think about the biblical parables of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, um, you know, we recognize the story and the, and the hopefully the simple truths that are being conveyed. Um, now, so principles for understanding parables. Um, this is where, so this is, how are we going to interpret or understand what this meaning or this message says? First, we need to understand the context. Uh, Oftentimes when we are interpreting or understanding the Bible, the first thing we want to do is understand the context. Oftentimes Jesus is, is answering a question or a statement or even a thought of a person Uh, when he's answering them in a parable. So let's understand the question or the situation that he is responding to with this parable. That's the direct context. Two, understand that many of the parables are, are about Israel. So unless we understand that Jesus came as a Jew to the Jewish people, taught to those under the law, was under the law himself, we need to understand, and by the way, this is true with all of our understanding of all the Gospels, not just the parables, that uh, that Jesus came and taught to those under the law, and that's the primary context of the Gospels. Uh, three, what is the main point? We've already talked about that. Four, got to be careful not to extend a metaphor too far. People try to see meaning in a parable, beyond what the the simple main truth of that parable is. And they try to extend that parable beyond what I think is probably intended. Can you give me an example of that one, Jeff? Well, there's... um the, one of the first parables in the Bible is about the kingdom, and it says that the the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed in the garden, grows to be one of the largest trees, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like the yeast. Um, the yeast grows and goes out throughout the whole batch of dough. I think the simple meaning of those parables is, is that the kingdom of heaven is advancing. It's growing Um, Later on in the parable of the mustard seed, it says that it grows so big that even the birds come in and rest in its branches, right? And some want to see the birds being demons that infiltrate the church somehow or evil that comes in because someplace else in Scripture, uh, birds are used as a metaphor for evil or, you know, Mm, for bad things. So this gets to the last point, by the way, of don't mix your metaphors. We don't want to mix our metaphors uh because just because birds mean bad or evil in one place doesn't mean they just mean th- they they represent evil in in this metaphor, in this parable. um, it may just mean that the tree got so big that birds come in and rest in its branches. That's mm-hmm. all that it means. uh, seeds are often seen in several of the parables. They actually mean different things. and when we get to the metaf- the parable of the yeast here, in fact well we should do it just now. yeast is often used as a metaphor, uh, for sin or for false teaching or for, um, the law. Um, there are several places in scripture where the yeast is used, um, to, for example, it says, uh, in, in Mark eight, watch out for the feast of the Pharisee. Well, what does yeast represent in that statement? Yeast represents the false teachings of the Pharisee. Um, in 1 in, uh, Corinthians, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? In that case, the yeast represents sin, all right? And then in Galatians, it says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. This, is, this imagery is just like the parable of the yeast work being worked through the whole batch of dough. But in this case, it represents false teaching, sin, or in Galatians, it represents the law, I think it actually is saying a little law spoils grace. A little law works through the whole batch of dough. It spoils grace. But in the parable of the yeast, it simply represents that yeast grows. And it grows until it eventually fills up the whole batch. So it's not a bad thing in the parable. It's actually a good thing. It's representing the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like some yeast that is worked through the whole batch of dough. And when you think about it, just like the mustard seed, Just like a little yeast that grows, that's exactly what's happening to the kingdom of heaven. It started very, very small. One man came. He then asked 12, mostly fishermen, to follow him, and it grew. Those 12 preached to many, and it became, and we see in Acts, and 3,000 were added to their name. It then went from Jerusalem to Judea and eventually to the ends of the earth, and today that kingdom of believers that we participate in that kingdom today. And we'll get to the kingdom parables in a minute. Uh, but it probably comprises somewhere close to a billion believers. Um, now, when we get to the kingdom parables, we'll see the kingdom of heaven is not on earth yet. So that's a big point to understanding some of these parables as well. All right. This is probably a good time to take a quick break. Uh, Jeff Redorns in studio. We're talking about
0: parables. Don't, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. glad you have joined me today at Jeff Verdorn in studio. We're talking about parables, and I want to get a save the date on your calendar coming up on November 21st. We're going to do a, an evening event, afternoons with me here at the University of Northwestern in room 100 right here where the studio is, and we're going to have a live presentation by the one and only Jeff Redorn, who's going to be uh, this is just a big tease today on parables, and we're going to get into that in a uh, live 90-minute uh, presentation. That's going
1: to be fun. I'm looking on forward 21st, to it. the
0: 21st, so we, uh, I don't know if we have any information yet quite on the website, but all I want to do right now is get you to save the date. It's a Thursday night, and I know you will have a great time. So Jeff and I and a special guest will be here, and we're going to have a uh, wonderful night of fellowship and teaching. So that is November the 21st. So, think Thanksgiving, and then just before, back up a little bit, and the Thursday
1: before. That's going to be great. All right, Jeff, let's uh, go back to the parable.
0: Let's talk about the very first
1: parable of the Bible. Yeah, this one's kind of fun. So, when I started looking at all the parables, you kind of got to attack them somehow. So, it's like, all right, let's get some lists of parables and start going through them, and you quickly find out the first parable in the Bible is this new cloth on an old coat and kind of combined with the new wine in the old wineskin. So we have it fresh in our mind. It says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour wine, new wine, into old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So what's the picture here? The picture here is that if you sew a new cloth that hasn't shrunk on a garment that has been washed and has been shrunk, that new patch will shrink the first time it's washed. Remember, we're talking about first century material here, mm-hmm. right? It's going to shrink a lot. And it will pull away and rip. So, too, the, the wine in the wine skin would have been an animal skin. And when you pour new wine in a new wine skin, the fermentation process will release those gases of, of, uh, that's during the wine fermentation process, and it will expand that skin well, if it's a new skin, it will be able to accommodate that and expand. But if you pour wine in an old wine skin that's already been stretched out, it will then burst. So those are two pretty clear images that everybody in the first century would have understood. So whats what can't you mix between the old and the new? Well, I think the interpretation is especially based on the context of, of the question right before this was, why don't your disciples fast? like the Pharisees. So this fasting was a requirement that uh, was under the pharisaical law. And so you're kind of comparing the system of the law to this new system that's coming under Christ, under grace, right? This new covenant that he is about to make. And I think the simple interpretation is there's the old the system of the law, and the new, the system of the grace, don't mix, mm. right? You mm-hmm. can't mix grace with law. In fact, I do a whole semester class called Law versus Grace, where we set up the system of the law in the Old Testament and the system of grace, right, salvation by faith in Christ uh, alone, and we compare the two and decide who wins in the end. Well, of course, we know who the winner of that case is. It's grace. Grace has won. And Christ, in fact, says that he has come to complete or fulfill the law. The law has been fulfilled in him and actually, as Romans 4 says, in us. It's an amazing verse. It says the righteous requirements of the law have been met in us. So in this amazing uh, understanding of who we are in Christ, God actually says that once you are a believer in Christ, he actually sees you now as if you've followed the law your entire life. Why? Because you are now in Christ who was without spot or blemish, fulfilled the whole law in his life, and you are in Christ. So that's now how God sees you. So the old and the new don't mix. In fact, Dwight Pentecost of this parable said this. He said, Christ was showing that the old system propagated by the Pharisees was worthless, useless, and outdated. It was impossible to patch it up so that it could continue to be used. Christ had not come to reform the pharisaical system of law, but to introduce an entirely new doctrine into the life of the nation. So we see, like, for example, in Romans uh, 8, it says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. The law made nothing righteous, remember. It only served to point out sin. And so how do we use the law today? In fact, Galatians tells us this that it it convicts people of sin and their need for a savior. So I think that that's what the parable is saying. The old system is done. We have a new system of the law is gone and done. The new system of grace has come, the old and the new. And they do, the two don't mix. Mm-hmm. And everyone back then would have completely understood that whole idea, right? <laughs> well, you know... Or easily, more easily. You know, one of the things, uh, the last principle for understanding doctrine that I fought, forgot to mention when we were talking about it is don't set doctrine by parables. In other words, almost every concept that is in a parable is taught in the New Testament someplace else, clearly for the most part about salvation, about what happens to the saved, what happens to the lost, that we have a new covenant, uh, that salvation is by faith alone without works, um, and so on. So let's set our doctrine by by clear New Testament teaching and bring that understanding to the parables. So would—I don't know how much the first century listener to those parables truly would have understood that, hey, because— Really the gospel that we don't rec- that Paul doesn't give us until 1 Corinthians 15 uh, they wouldn't have known or understood yet now even though Christ said that he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles, crucified, buried and rise again, it, we see in the Gospel account. they truly didn't understand that yet until much later. Now we have the full Testament the full New Testament testimony that we can use to understand and we bring that to understanding the Gospels. All right, what about some of the kingdom parables? Should we move on to those? Yeah, this is this is a group of parables um, that everybody would recognize that a lot of parables start with some phrase like the kingdom of heaven is like mm-hmm. And that is generally what I, I call the kingdom parables. Um, a couple notes on the kingdom as we were talking about early earlier. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and he called it near. Well, Jesus was near to them. He was with them. He was from God the Father, from the kingdom, and he was near. The kingdom he taught was advancing. We saw that in the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast, and it was advancing and it was growing. However, Jesus said before Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. It was from someplace else, right? It was a heavenly kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then the, the main point, and this is actually a debate amongst Christianity, um, unfortunately, because I actually think it's rather clear that we're not in the kingdom now. All right? The kingdom has not yet come. I teach that the kingdom will not come until Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, returns to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he begins to reign for a thousand years on earth. Right? That's why, by the way, we pray in the Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So one day the kingdom is coming to earth and will be on earth. Now, some will claim or try to teach that the Bible teaches that we are in the kingdom right now. And it's like, well, let's look at some of the descriptions, shall we, of what this kingdom looks like from the Bible. And, for example, in Isaiah it says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the lion will eat straw like the oxen, and the little children will will lead them all. Well, I don't see that happening yet, right? Another one is, um, he says... Uh, That men will um, beat—I'm looking at my notes here. I don't see it. Men will beat their weapons into plowshares. Oh, here it is, Isaiah 2. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Well, that sounds like there'll be peace on earth. Well, guess what? That only happens—read the newspaper. It's not happening today, is it? That only happens when the Prince of Peace returns— and establishes peace on earth. So when the beauty queen or the beauty contestant says that you know she wishes you know world peace and that's what her deepest desire is, <laughs> yeah. she's really praying for the return of Jesus. She may not understand that, but yeah. world peace is not going to come until the Prince of Peace sets his feet on this planet and begins to reign, uh, and then there will be peace. And if on she earth. said that, she probably wouldn't win the title. No, she probably that wouldn't, would probably wouldn't, would would cost which, her. Yeah. We're going to take a little break, Jeff. Okay. We're
0: already at the hard break time, but we're going to continue our discussion with with Jeff Verdorn on the parables. So uh, get out your Bible and notebook and your pen, and we'll take lots of notes. A reminder that uh, save the date for November 21st. Jeff is going to be over here. We're going to be doing a live event, a live broadcast of the show. We're going to record it that night, but it'll be at 7 p.m. right here um, at the studio where we broadcast. So it's going to be a great time. I think we've got room for about 75 people, so you're going to want to save the date, and then we'll tell you more about how to sign up. We'll take a 90-second uh, break and be back. I love it with my friend Jeffrey Doran's studio because I learn so much. I... Can't wait to go home tonight and listen to the program when I can get my notebook out and take better notes because I'm scribbling all kinds of things down now. But we're talking about parables. And Jeff, there's so many parables that talk about one way is good and one way is
1: bad. Yeah, so a lot of the kingdom parables and the kingdom of heaven is like, right? Mm-hmm. And we yeah. see a number of them that describe what's some, something that's good and something that's bad and that there is a destiny for those who are good, and there's a destiny for those who are bad. He says of the good, for example, the little children, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? I mean, it sounds like a really good thing, right? So I think everybody should want to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless you change and become like a little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So some will go in. But then he also says things like in Matthew 7. um, He says, then I will say to the... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Now, remember in Matthew 7, he's talking about false prophets there. Those are the ones who said, didn't I not do all these things in your name? But he says of some, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So clearly, Jesus has pointed out that there is one road that leads to eternal life and another road that doesn't, that leads to condemnation, to damnation. Uh, that's what John three sixteen says by the way, and there are there's this a resurgence today of a of this old lie called universalism. There's actually a book out that's called love wins and and teaches that in some way, shape, or form, God's love triumphs or wins in the end, and everybody will get to heaven well over and over and over, especially in the parables but also in the clear teachings of both the Gospels and in the New Testaments, God declares no. There is a narrow gate and a small road that leads to everlasting life, and there's a broad road and a wide gate that leads to destruction, and many go through it. So many of the parables are describing these two ways. In fact, I think there's about 15 out of the total of 40 parables that describe the two ways. So there's the parable of the weeds. So you've got the good seed and the bad seed. You have the parable of the net, right, where you've got some good fish and you've got some bad fish the parable of the faithful faithful and wise servant it's almost like jesus is saying do you want to be a faithful and wise servant or do you want to be a wicked servant and where do the wicked servants go where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth they go off and don't enter into the this wedding banquet this imagery of this wedding banquet even the parable of the of the 10 virgins remember you had 5 who were wise and were ready when the bridegroom returned there were 5 others that weren't ready now i think how are we ready uh, one of the things that you got to understand is with new testament the rest of the new testament understanding is we are ready through faith in christ okay so one of the big keys here is they weren't ready because they had a candle or oil or whatever now in the parable it was oil the picture was oil right and but they were ready for when the bridegroom returned how are we ready according to the new testament we are ready for christ to return through faith in him. If you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are ready. Mm-hmm. You are one of the wise servants. You are one of the, the wise virgins, the, the the not one of the foolish virgins. Uh, the parable of the servants, the parable of the tenants, the parable of the two roads, the parable of the two sons and the unfruitful fig tree. Uh, these are all pictures of God saying, look, I'm setting before you a choice, right? Life and death choose life. Joshua said it this way, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, Every single person on the planet has to answer the question, like Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Right? And Mm -hmm. so many of the parables are simply stating that some will enter the kingdom of heaven and some will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I like. This is awesome. So, <clears throat> what parables should we look at next, Jeff? Why don't we look at, you know, one of the things that when I started looking and studying these parables, it's fascinating. I've spent most of my study time in the New Testament, you know, because we have some clear teachings about salvation and assurance and, and, uh, and, end times and law versus grace and so on and so forth. And I hadn't spent a lot of time in the parables. And so, When I started diving in, I know that a couple of parables, I never really thought um, the common interpretation was proper, but I never had a good answer for what I really believe. So let's look at two that I really like that we're going to turn on their heads today. Nice. Okay. So it's the parable of the pearl and the parable of the hidden treasure. Okay. so let's read these. They're short and we can read them. Uh, I'm in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like, so there's that phrase again, it's like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. It continues in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. All right, so the common interpretation of these, both these parables are that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, like a hidden treasure or a fine pearl, that we should go sell everything we have and buy the field where the treasure is hidden or buy the fine pearl, right? I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard that taught mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, that we should be willing to sell everything, to give up everything, and to go buy the kingdom, Now, first question, can you buy your way into the kingdom of heaven? No. No, you can't. So it's like at first blush you go, well, wait a minute here. That doesn't really fit because you can't really buy your way into the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, if in the first one, if the treasure was the kingdom of heaven and you find it in another man's field and then you decide, oh, wait a minute. I really want this treasure, so I'm going to bury it back into the field. I'm going to go buy the land, and then I'll own the f- the treasure, mm-hmm. right? Isn't that defrauding the landowner of the, his rightful treasure that was on his land? I would think so. Isn't that being a little deceptive? Ah, uh, yeah. So I've I started saying, "I'm going. Wait a minute here. I don't know that we can buy into the ki- the kingdom, and I don't really think that we want to be showing that we should be deceptive in ho- in obtaining it." Well, let's flip this on its head, shall we? What if the merchant is not us buying the kingdom? What if Jesus is the merchant who is buying the fine pearls and the treasure? Now, hang with me for a second here. I'm not going anywhere. No, right. <laughs> right. For the for the pearl, if Jesus is the merchant and he is the one who gives up everything to buy fine pearls, men, for God. Does Scripture someplace in the New Testament describe this? And as a matter of fact, it does. In Revelation 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, I'm going to read both of them in Revelation first, And they sang a new song about Jesus, saying you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 1 Corinthians 6 20 says it this way, that we were bought at a price. That price was the blood of Christ in which he purchased us. So I think it fits better if Jesus is the merchant listen again, listen to the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Isn't that exactly what Jesus came to do? He came to seek and to save that which was lost and bought for God men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He's the one who gave up everything to buy the fine pearls, us men, for God. Now, this even fits even more interestingly with the hidden treasure. Where if if the hidden tre- and I think this is specifically related to Gentiles, I think the hidden treasure is specifically related to Israel. Now watch this. He also died for the sins of all of Israel, but they rejected him, right? So he hides them, if you will, in a field owned by who controls the world today? Who's in control? First John says the whole world is in control of the evil one. He's the God of this age, the prince of this world. Israel was hidden out in the land for 2,000 years as they were dispersed into the world, the diaspora, and are now being gathered back in these last days back to Israel. About half of Israel now is back into Israel. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is going to come once again, and Israel will be saved. And in fact, Scripture says that in Exodus 19, out of all the nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession, God says. So I actually think that Jesus is the one who is buying both Gentile and Jew alike. We learn that in Romans, that he was the sacrifice for both groups sins, and that we are the fine pearls, and that specifically Israel is the treasure. So we take that parable we flip it on its head and I think it makes a lot more sense.
0: That's powerful. Hmm. That's great, Jeff. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it is. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Jesus is the merchant the merchant and we are the fine pearls. This he gave up everything to get us. Yeah. He and, sacrificed
1: it all. So I'm teaching this class on parables on Wednesday nights at my church at Grace Church. And, uh, and then also in my, the Sunday group that I'm doing. And I ask people, does that seem to make more sense? And literally 100% of the heads are nodding, yes, that makes a lot more sense. Because obviously Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We can't buy into the kingdom. We can't work our way into the kingdom. It's by faith. And, but Jesus has bought and paid for the price for our salvation and I think that's exactly what he came to do. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Cool.
0: Yeah. So Christ has paid for us with his blood, shed blood on the cross. That seems like the only logical explanation.
1: It, it, it seems to fit a yeah. lot better, doesn't it? It really than the, does. Kind of the traditional mm-hmm. uh, view. So, and I'm and by trying the way, to think I'm, about, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not alone. Um, in fact, Dwight Pentecost in his book... Um, on parables uh, came to the same conclusion. I, I, You know, when I'm studying these things, one of the things I like to do is, okay, has anybody else kind of come to this conclusion as well? Well, guess what? There's lots of people that have mm-hmm. come to the same
0: conclusion. So. so I'd love for you to say a little bit more about the hidden treasure of Israel.
1: Um, yeah, the you know, the picture of deceiving the landowner to get into the kingdom of heaven, if we're the one buying the treasure, we literally have to be deceitful in acquiring the treasure that we went back and hid right. in the man's field, which just to me doesn't fit the no. New Testament understanding no. of salvation. So if Satan is the landowner and he's the God of this age, the prince of this world, the whole world is in control of the evil one, 1 John 5 says, then then God is hiding the treasure to protect it ...for a time until he comes back when Israel's saved. Well, when is that? We know in Romans 11 that there's a day coming when all Israel will be saved. I teach that that's at the second coming, when the remnant of Israel, national Israel... ...will finally look upon him who they have pierced and groan, recognizing that, hey, yes, he was the Messiah after all. Believe in him... And enter into the kingdom and in fact many of the parables related relate to Israel uh, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the tenants uh, that are that, that farmed the land, the parable of the fig tree, the parable of the persistent widow all of these only make sense when you understand that they relate to Israel and that there is a future salvation coming for the remnant of Israel Romans 11 one day is coming when all Israel will be saved. So remember, this goes back in my End Times class. We don't have time to go to it. But this this happens because of the old promise to Abraham when God said, you and your descendants after you will possess this land for how long? Forever. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and sure enough... Israel will enter into that kingdom, this remnant of Israel will enter into the kingdom and be saved at the second coming of Christ. So if you understand that, then suddenly some of these other parables make a lot of sense. So I think that's the hidden treasure, hidden in the world, you know, saved at the end when he uh, takes over the world and takes Satan, throws him into this, uh, chains him up and throws him in the abyss, and then the treasure will be brought forth. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, let me take a little break. Jeff Verduren's, uh in studio and
0: just want to give you a heads up for a Save the Date on November 21st in the evening, right here on the University of Northwestern here in Roseville. We're going to have an evening of uh, teaching with Jeff. We're going to talk about the parables, and it's going to be lots of chance to uh, meet and greet, and uh, an hour of teaching, a little bit of Q&A, and this various uh, hand food, which I'm sure will be available, and beverages of all kinds. So, that's going to be on uh, November 21st. Save the date. We'll take a short break and be back. Welcome back to the show, Jeff Redorns in studio, and I've got some inquiries coming in already, Jeff, for our evening on November 21st. Right now the question is, do we have to sign up for that evening? And eventually, yes. I don't know if we are in a position right now to receive. I don't think we are. It's not up on the website yet, but it will be. I'll keep reminding you when that time comes, but I'm just trying to get it as a save the date. So put it on your calendar for November 21st. It's a Thursday night. We are going to have a blast. So um, tell your friends, and I think we've got room for about 75 people, so I know it will fill up quickly. So I'll let you know more about uh, signing up when that time comes. All right, Jeff, let's talk about uh, one of the more famous parables, and that's the sheep, the coin, and the son that are all lost.
1: Yeah, so I grouped these together in three. It's the, they're, they're kind of mentioned right in a row as well. So we have the lost sheep the lost coin and the lost son. The lost sheep is, remember, this uh, one sheep goes off out of the 99 and the shepherd goes out and uh, and not and finds it and brings it back. And I love this. It says that it, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who don't need to repent. So there we know that this is a picture of someone who's lost in need of salvation and is found, is saved, and there's great rejoicing in heaven. Uh, notice that he, the shepherd goes after each and every person. I love the line in John. It says, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, right? And I think that's exactly the picture of creation. I think God is drawing all men to my, to himself. And, and you kind of ask, well, how does he do that? Well, I think there's lots of ways. Creation declares his glory in Romans 1, right? So that man is without excuse. When you open your eyes and you see creation or you see mountains or lakes or whatever, and you have this sense of awe, that awe is supposed to point to God. Now, it doesn't always, they, they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. kind of sounds like the modern day environmental movement, you know, the tree huggers, right? It's like, yeah, the tree's great. But the one who created the tree is that much greater, right? And that's what creation is supposed to point to. Um, he says in Ecclesiastes that he puts eternity in man's heart, right? Every single people group on every continent in every century has believed there's something after this life. Well, that's because I think God put eternity on man's heart. They don't always get it right? right? So they build big pyramids and bury (laughs) their pharaohs with treasures, Mm -hmm. right? And thinking that will get them to eternal life. They don't understand. Um, He says he sends the Holy Spirit out to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And by the way, we're supposed to be partnering with him to bring the gospel to the world, right? So I think that's how God is drawing all men to himself. So we see that in the lost sheep. In the lost coin, many commentators will comment that that women in the first century would wear like a headband or a necklace with 10 coins on it. And it was a sign that they were married. They'd sew these coins into this headband or this necklace. So if it's, this is not just an ordinary coin. This is a treasured coin that a woman had prepared. And, and it's kind of like a woman losing your, her wedding ring. Wouldn't you turn over every couch and every chair and sweep out your whole house looking for your wedding ring? That's kind of what this parable is saying. So she looks it, she finds it, and once again there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over of God over one sinner who repents. So once again, clearly in the parable itself, it says this is about salvation, that when one lost person believes the gospel and is saved, there is great rejoicing in heaven. Now the prodigal son, remember, sheep was one out of a hundred, then the coin was one out of ten. And now we're one out of two, two sons. There's got to be some significance there. Um, I don't know what it is, but there's <laughs> got to be some significance there. I right? such high hopes you were going to give me an answer. I, I wish I could. Um, but now we're down to the one son. He want, We know the story, right? He takes his inheritance. He wanders off. He's wallowing with the pigs, uh, with which for a Jew would have been really, really bad, right? Um, And then I love the line in verse 17 of Luke 15. It says, when he came to his senses, right, he came to his senses, and he confesses that he has sinned before his Father and before heaven. Well, isn't that the godly sorrow that leads to repentance that Paul is talking about in the rest of the New Testament? In fact, when he comes back to the Father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And yet the father, who has ran out to greet him, which a first century master of a household would never run out to greet his son, um, and he puts on him these this robe and the ring and the sandals. And I think that's all these uh, symbols of the authority. Remember, in in Christ, we wear the robe of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And I think all of these things signify that he's no longer a slave, but a son, mm-hmm. and he's now, he was dead, his father says he was dead, and he's alive again. Now, some say that this symbolizes that the the son was saved, lost his salvation, and now regained his salvation again. No, 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 that's not what it says. I believe that, that you are saved once, and you can never lose your salvation, and we've talked about the assurance. In fact, I think the last time I was on, we talked about assurance of salvation. Yep. I think this is Properly understood that he was dead and born again or made alive, so this is his salvation and uh, and he goes in, so he's, he has the robe, the ring, the sandal, all symbols of this salvation, and then they enter into the feast as a uh, saved person. Uh, remember, God wishes none to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is God's heart. First Timothy and Peter both declare that um, his heart is that none should perish. That's why Christ came to die, to seek and to save that which was lost. So no matter if it's one sheep or one coin or a son, God is drawing all to himself. And when that one person comes to their senses and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and trusts in him and him alone for their salvation— You now are a son. In fact, John says it this way, that when you believe, God gives you the right to be called a child of God. You are now adopted into his family. And I think it's a wonderful picture of salvation. I love, Jeff, that the father went out to
0: meet the prodigal son, the one who had squandered his money. Mm -hmm. And he also had to go out to speak to the elder son, who wouldn't come into the party. He's always going out. No, I mean, one was alienated from the father for doing
1: everything wrong, and one was alienated by doing everything right. Yeah, there, the, there is a debate about whether the older son was saved or lost. Mm-hmm. Now, I, this may be where we're extending a mer- metaphor when the primary simple main passage here is about the younger son, yeah. but it's an interesting debate about whether the older son was saved or lost. It's kind of like the 99 sheep, where the 99 mm-hmm. sheep saved or were they lost? Um, The context of these passages is Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. So some will say, well, the sheep, it says of the sheep, they didn't need to repent, right? That they were righteous, they didn't need to repent. Some will argue that, no, that's the Pharisees' self-righteousness of the older son. It says that he did not go into the banquet. He had this attitude of angst against the younger son, right? That he was being treated special, and it says that he didn't go into the banquet. Well, if going into the banquet is a picture of salvation, well, then the older son refused to go into the banquet and therefore is potentially not saved. Um, Since I started studying this, I've actually gone back and forth about a dozen times about whether the older son is saved or not saved. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to the main point, (laughs) which is the younger son, I know he's saved. I know he came to a sentence. He senses, he recognized his sin, and he believed, and therefore he was saved. And so God, the master, the father, dresses him in the righteous robe of Christ uh, and now sees him as a son in the kingdom of heaven.
0: Yeah. It's been a really a great hour, Jeff, and a great introduction to speaking about parables and learning more about parables. And we're going to go crazy on November 21st, we're going to do more parables, aren't we?
1: Uh, we you know what? I'm, we're not going to get through them all, but there are some really cool parables, and I've learned a lot over the last few months uh, really digging into these parables as well. So. Yeah,
0: so November 21st, Thursday night, right here um, at the University of Northwestern, right here at the Mel Johnson studio. We've got a beautiful room on the first floor that seats about 75, and we'll have the information up on the website probably in the next couple of days, and I will remind you to go to the website and get your name on the list to... Uh, be in attendance for our, our live event with Jeff Redoran on November 21st. It's going to be a great night. You can come meet and greet and have all kinds of great teaching and fellowship, and it, I promise it'll be a great night. So that wraps up our show for the day. Thanks to Jim J. Wonder Wallace and Jeff for making it really an outstanding show. I've loved it. If you missed any of the show, head to MyFaithRadio.com and go to the show page, and you can listen to the podcast exactly what I plan to do later tonight. Because uh, sometimes... The information we get all comes at you really fast. you got to go through it a second time, which I love doing. I hope you do too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting Faith Radio. I will see you tomorrow. God bless.